Lately, it seems that we are getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. Church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. Church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. Church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. Church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. Drop that mic. Right? You are the church. Go and be the church. That's it. That's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible says that there is no thing in all of creation like the church. There is not a thing to be compared with in wonder, in beauty, in brilliance, in love, in power, and here it is, in potential, like the bride of Jesus Christ. And you and me, we, us, are part of that bride. We are the church. You have to understand the importance of the church to fully grasp like how to make sense out of life. In this epic of time, in this season, dispensation, whatever, the church. The church is the means of the Father displaying his glory about his Son to creation. That's our place right now. We need to seize that moment. It's a paradigm. It's a worldview. It's a way of seeing all things. The church. Now, it's hard to see paradigms. It's hard to appreciate the values of paradigms. So I'm going to take a run at this. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to help you understand how important this is. Some of you are going to grasp this. Here's, it, it's not, well, okay. So here's, here's what it's like. You know, a, a worldview. Band parents. Any of you guys band parents? Any of you guys in band? Anybody know anybody in a band parent? God bless band parents. God help new band parents because new high school band parents, they go into it thinking all things in moderation. They, they're quoting Aristotle, you know, ethics, right? It's virtue is the golden mean between the extremes. There, there's no virtue in high school band and there's no moderation it, none, of, none of life makes sense if you, if you are thinking, well, it's, it's just banned. You can't say it's just banned and being banned because not, you'll, you'll, like your head will explode because things don't connect. And you'll be trying to figure it out. And the banned culture and banned expectations, it will sift you until you are worn down. And then that moment happens in your life where you see like an epiphany, and you realize, wait, life is banned. 
And then band is life. And when band is life, everything starts making sense. Like it, like it all fits together. And so the band director says, so yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, you're going to need to come back to practice way before school even starts and rearrange, you know, years of family traditions and vacation expectations. And, and as a band parent, he's like, okay, because band is, band is life. And so they, so they come back and they practice on asphalt in Texas in August. Sure, band is life. Yeah, worked out great. <laughs> you, if you were to think it's just band, if you were to say those words, it's just band, I'll, you know, I'll pay you a dollar. It won't matter. You'll never get it. But I'll pay you a dollar. Go up into the stadium seats this weekend on Friday, anywhere in Central Texas here, and just go into the stadium seats where the parents of the band, the band parents are and just say, oh, it's, it's just band. There, you will never make it to your car. You will need a police escort, and you'd better pray that that police officer is not a band parent because they'll never find your body. You can't say that. That's not the way it works. Band is life. Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Lights redone. It ought to be redone. It's about band. Because if you ask band parents, they'll tell you that's when everyone gathers together, other people outside the band and their parents, so they can watch halftime. And just to show you how important it's like halftime's more important than those other guys running around between that, that that, that halftime is just practice for future competition. And you know this because if a football team were to do so well as to go into the playoffs, like too deep into the playoffs, into late November, December, the band isn't even there. They're at, they're at the, the competition. This is a legendary issue between what's more important, football and, and, and band. There's a song about it, right? When the players tried to take the field, the marching band refused to yield. That was the day the music died. See how it all makes sense? If band is life, then all, all the things fit into place. Okay. The church is like that, but not creepy, okay? It's not as creepy. And I want you to see particularly this church. I'm going to explain a few things today because, you know, we've, we've been celebrating our 50 years together as a church this, this month. We've been, this is our anniversary in many respects. And when we talked about the past, that's fine. We're going to talk about the future. And I want you to see some things today with a worldview. This is grace. And I'm going to kind of tell you the secret stuff behind the scenes so that you can see if this is true, then all these other things make sense. This is the worldview of grace. This is how to like connect the dots easily. I'm giving you the answers in many respects ahead of time. Why do we exist? Why do we, we exist? What do we do and, and how do we do it? So why do we exist is, is to glorify God by guiding people to become like Christ in all of life. Glorify God by guiding people to become like Christ in all of life. Now, I'm not going to just inform you of these truths today. I'm going to call to a challenge at the end. I'm going to explain, you know, life is church, church is life in this era, and then expect, like, make a decision in some respects. And at, at this church, you know, are you in? Are you in? At Grace, at this church, this is why we do things, to glorify God. 
by guiding people to become like Christ in all of life, to make disciples, okay? And, and to, to glorify God, that, to bring him honor in that way. And we're not doing this uh, because it's our history so much. This is our vision because we're doing what we're told. This is what Jesus told us to do. This is the way we were meant to be, to become like Christ in all of life. That's our design, is to be like Christ. And if you, if you must know, it's also the only way to make sense out of life. It's the only way life works. And so at Grace, we would expect everyone to be a disciple, to become like Christ in all of life, and then to guide other people to become like Christ. So the why is to glorify God in that context. And the what we do is reaching up in worship and in towards each other and out towards the world. And so this is, our, this is the answer to the question, what are we going to do? We are a regional church that worships God, that equips disciples for ministry, right? Every believer is a minister here and takes the good news of Jesus Christ into our community and into the world. That's what we do. That's, that's what we do. That's why we do it. That's what we do. Now, here today, I'm going to talk a lot about how do we do that? How do we equip all of our members to become like Christ in all of life and use that to do ministry in the four corners of the world, in the place of influence? Primarily, right here, today we're going to talk about is we are committed to biblical truth. Committed to biblical truth. I'm going to look at that phrase in kind of two sections. First, I'm going to talk about committed to biblical truth. Right? And, and what, why we're connected to that, why we have that as a conviction. And then the second uh, part kind of of our talk together, to, together today is going to talk about what it means to be committed to, to that, what it means to be surrendered to biblical truth, to be subservient, to, to serve that, right? to be in submission to that. So first, biblical truth. Okay, how did we come to this conviction? All right. So philosophically speaking, okay, the purpose of life is this. To pursue truth to wherever it leads, no matter the cost. That's the purpose of life, philosophically. To pursue truth no matter where it leads, whatever the cost. That's what we're to do in life. That's why we put, that's, what we're, that's why we're humans, right? And so, truth. It doesn't matter what your family said was true. That doesn't make it true. It doesn't mean it's a lie. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what history or tradition says is true. That doesn't affect whether something's true or not. It doesn't matter your, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your geography. It just doesn't. It's, it is true or it's not true. So when we're, this, we're, we're, when we're in this pursuit of truth, we want to be unbiased in where we find, where we determine and how we determine something is true or not. Now, in the context of a church, right, the reason we find ourselves here is, like, what is the most important truth topic we could ever endeavor into? The truth about God. The truth about God. That's going to be a significant topic. And so we find ourselves, how do we know what God is like? We look first primarily kind of in, in nature. We get a general revelation about God in nature and physics in all of creation. And we can come to certain conclusions. And we follow truth wherever it leads, no matter the cost. And when you follow general revelation, when you look at nature, you're going to come to some conclusions that are probably close to what Socrates and Aristotle determined about the nature of God. And they paid a price for that. That's good. They did, they did a good job. But what about something beyond nature? 
Has God communicated in a very special way about details of life that we would need to know, not just about what is right and real and true, but about the nature of God himself? Has God revealed himself in a way so that we might know him intimately, know what he's like and how, what, what is justice and what is love? Well, he, he probably has, and you would think he would because if I created a universe, I would reveal myself to creation, and I'm not very smart. And so, of course, God would reveal himself, so we look at books. We look, we look at books that say, this book is from God. This book is from God. This book is about God. You look at those books that say that, they're from God and they're about God, you say, okay, which one of those books is the most reasonable which book makes the most sense? Which, which book actually proves it's true and, which, and should be trusted, right? What book, if we opened it and read from cover to cover, could you read it and then look up and say, you know what? If, if this is true, then all of this starts making sense. Now it fits. What book would that be? Well, at Grace... We would say the Bible is that book. We would say the Bible is the book that God used to reveal his nature to his creation. That biblical truth, that's why we didn't just put truth, we put biblical truth there, is the greatest truth available to us today. The Bible is the greatest truth and the clearest truth that is available to us at this point. It is the voice of God about what is right, what is real, what is true, and the nature of God himself. We didn't come to this conclusion because our parents said so, or we're from North America in the 20th, 21st century. We came to this conclusion because you would think that a book from God about these critical areas and his definition would be reliable. And so there's manuscripts, this text itself, the Bible text, right? Are those manuscripts reliable. Oh, you bet they are. I mean, the Old Testament manuscripts, there's not as many as you would like, but they are nearly perfect in their copying of one another. I mean, to the point where there are so few errors and you know where they are that it is beyond human capabilities. And you would stop and think, wow, I think there was divine protection in these copings of the Old Testament. And you would you would be right in that conclusion. You look at the New Testament, while the, you know, the, the, the copying of those is probably leads a little something to be desired because of, of the circumstances, the number of manuscripts are, are incomparable to any other piece of literature ever written. I mean, there are so many New Testament manuscripts that we absolutely know what the original author meant to the original audience. And because of the reliability of the manuscripts, both Old and New Testament, even an objective third party would look at the Bible in the way it's been maintained, the script itself, and say, this is a miracle. This book is not like any other book that's ever been written. Then you look at not just like internal manuscripts, but external verifications, external validation. How would we know that the Bible is true? Well, you'd look at things like, well, history. The, the Bible very specifically lays out names of things, uh, names of places and civilizations and kings and currency. Uh, and, and by the way, like probably the newest hard science 
in, in our experience is the science of archaeology. It really is. It's, it's the new kid on the block. And when, when archaeology was just a young lad, it was famous for its criticism of the history of the Bible. Oh, there's no place like that. There's no guy named Joshua or David. Well, archaeology as a science has kind of grown up a little bit. And now he goes to the Bible to find out what's historically true. He goes to the Bible and says, okay, there's a Joshua. He probably built a tabernacle or rather an altar somewhere. Let's find out in the Bible where to dig. And they did. And they found it <laughs> because the historicity of the Bible, it's not challenged like it used to be. But the external validation of a book written by a divine being is no more, pre no more prevalent than in prophecies and prophecies fulfilled. This is just God showing off. In the Bible, you'll see God declaring something to happen in, the, you know, in, in history, and it will talk about it coming into, into fruition to the date, to the name of a person. You can set your clock to these prophecies, and, and you have to conclude this, that the God who sent this revelation to man had not just foreknowledge. He didn't know what was going, just know what was hap going to happen. He caused, he sovereignly oversought that history. He is overseeing the past, the present, and the future. Why did God put prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible? So that you and I would know this book, the Bible, it's from him. You need to know this book is the clearest expression. The Bible is the clearest expression of truth that we have available to us today. And we will follow that truth no matter where it goes, no matter what the cost. That's how we came to that conclusion. And that's why Paul writes this to his young pastor, you know, uh, Timothy. He says this, all scripture is inspired, God-breathed by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspired there, most of your translations will be inspired, but literally the NIV says it, it's, it means God breathes. The Bible is a book from God Almighty. God Almighty. It even has all the authority of God in it. It is from him. The Bible has a nickname, right? We call it the Word of God because it is. The Bible is different in kind, not in degree, from all pieces of literature, sculpture, music, any expression of human creativity. The Bible is over here and everything else is over there. How dare anything else say, this is from the Creator, this is from God. The Bible is not a collection of sages trying to give advice. It's a miracle. It's not from here. It's from heaven. It lasts into eternity. That's why we say we are committed to biblical truth. Biblical truth. Now, we're going to follow that whatever the cost, wherever its destination and when we say we, it, it has authority over it, us, it means that we're in submission to it. It is up here, and it defines for us what is right and real and true. 
It tells us the way life is, what God is like. It's, it's, not, too, it's not just a useful tool so that maybe you could work your kids into, I don't know, some kind of subjection or something. I don't know. But it, whatever, what the Bible says is. It doesn't matter what 51% of the people say. It doesn't matter what the culture around us concludes. It doesn't matter if the truth that we find ourselves in is comfortable or uncomfortable. It, does, it, it has supremacy over the laws of the country that we submit to up until it conflicts with the laws of God. We don't agree to disagree with what the Bible says. We just do what we're told because it has authority over us. It is, we are in submission to it. it Our submission to the Bible is actually an expression of our discipleship. Become like Christ in all of life. Jesus was in submission to the Bible. Jesus was was God, and he you would think he'd have authority over the book he wrote, but he says this in Matthew chapter 5. I don't think that I came here to abolish the law and the prophets. No, no, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I'll tell you the truth, and until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And everything that it's said to accomplish. Submission means it's true. We must be wrong. And after we're listening to that, when you look at a passage of Scripture or a doctrine or whatever it might be, when we work that and we find what that meaning is, here's what submission to that truth means. It means if I think different, I change the way I have to think to what the Bible says is right, real, or true, or the nature of God. If I have a feeling that doesn't seem to be appropriate for the circumstances, according to the Bible, my feelings are wrong. If the Bible says that I ought to be doing something and I'm not, I need to change what I'm doing. Listen, this has great effect in our everyday life. And, and, and you need to understand, because, because, of its, because of its profound, you know, a priori power on us, it, it defines all things around us, even our circumstances. I was uh, in a hospital visitation uh, a couple years ago, and the person was, in, was there for, for long enough to really be in a consequence of, of, of their illness, right? Really sick. And when I went and talked to her, she said, you know, I just, I'm just, I'm so tired, and, I, and God is not near, and he does not love me, and I just feel so distant, and I, I don't know what to do, you know, and, and I, I thought, well, what's, what's true? I mean, that, you know, I know you're sick and all, but what's been promised? Because what's been promised is that he would never leave you. He would never forsake you. The Bible says that he loves you, and he can't not love you. So I don't care how you feel. He can't be distant. I don't care if it's not working for you right now that you don't feel like he's loving you because those things don't matter. Get your feelings in the trunk where they belong and enjoy this moment. Ask this question. In light of God's presence and his certain love, how would that affect your disposition in light of you being in the hospital right now? See? I didn't say any of that. I was thinking those things. That's not very pastoral of me. But look, 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 look. 
They, but look how it changes the perspective because what's right and real and true has been altered by circumstances in this poor soul's life, right? You know what you can say into that? Jesus loves you. This I know. You sell, you, come on. Be, because the Bible tells me so. You're right. You're right. The Bible says it's true. And so I am loved. And he is present. See? It defines, it defines all things around you, all of our ethics, all of our values. The Bible says this is the parameters of your entertainment, and I stay within those parameters. This is the definition of what a man is and what a woman is. This is how to parent. We should just obey that. This is how to do marriage. We should just do, go along with that. This is what you should do with your money. Do it. Just do it. Here's where we stiff-arm God. A lot of times we think we're in submission to the word of God or we're in submission to God because we're, you know, we're in agreement with what he says here. And so we do it. We're in agreement with what he says here. We do it. We're in agreement with what he says here. We do it. We're in disagreement here. So we don't do it. That's not, those other three submissions weren't submissions. We were just kind of going in the same direction. You really know it's submission when he says one thing and you think, feel, or want to do something else and you change. You change. You alter because he's the definition through his word, through that book of what is right and real and true. You have to pick an authority. You have to pick an authority, and then that authority rules you. At Grace, we've chosen this, that the Bible is a gift from God that has explained to us all crucial issues of ethics, of definitions of terms, of the nature of God. And I want you to know, you know, I've been speaking so, you know, confidently and declaratively, but we don't necessarily have to like where these truths lead or how much they cost. I don't. I really, there's so many of the areas of the Bible, I don't like them. I don't like where they lead, and I don't, have, I don't like how much they cost. But. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to pay the toll. In areas that are certain, not ambiguous, not where we get to negotiate because he allows that, but in these areas that are clear and we don't like those, I don't know about you. I'm sure you feel this way too. But our, my soul mourns. Doesn't yours, right? Don't you grieve? If this is true and this is the ethic, then the consequence on that person is, oh, dear God, Really? For life? For life? And I, in my prayer life, I go to God, I was like, this, look around. You know, this, like, it's 2019, it's in America, so much has changed. And, and he's, I, in some of these situations, because some things change over time, some things don't, but most of what I'm talking about in my soul is like, Matt, doesn't matter. It's not a cultural ethic. It's not a historic tied to a time ethic. These are definitions of what is and what is right and wrong that precede your creation, that are part of creation, and will go on into eternity. This is the way things are. And there's a cost, and I get it. It transcends us. And so submission means this. When the Bible says to do something and we don't want to do it, 
because we don't need to do it, and we don't deserve to do it, and no one else is doing it, right? We do it anyway. When the Bible says, don't do something, and we want to do it anyway. We need to do it anyway. It would feel good to do it anyway, and everybody else is doing it. If it says don't do it, we don't do it because it has authority over us. And here, by the way, I'm just going to move to how, how, this is how I live with this. This is how I express a lot of my faith today. Honestly, the faith of the assurance of things hoped for and the, the assurance of things not seen. I go like this. God, I don't like where this truth is leading and I don't like the cost. Intellectually, intellectually, this does not make sense to me. But I'm going to trust that you know so much more. That the depth of your wisdom is so more profound than mine. And I don't have all the information. And so it's the reasonable thing. And when my heart grieves for people in my own life, when I have to make choices, and I think about things and how much it costs, and my emotions are stirred, I think, God, this does not appear to be loving, but by faith, you love every person more than I could ever hope to or want to. And you would not withhold good things, and you would not grant us things that would destroy us, and so this must be the most loving ethic consequence, truth. And there are times where I just don't want to do things and obedience doesn't look like the right way. And I don't have to know. I just have to do. And so I will. Because when you do something, and it's, it's almost, it's, it's almost, when you do something you don't want to do, that's a great expression of, to the glory of God. We talk about the glory of God. Glory of God is expressed in obedience when you don't want to, you don't feel like it, and it doesn't make sense. And life is about the glory of God, not about the glory of me. And so I submit to the power and the authority of the Bible when I do, when I do what the Bible says, no matter where it goes, no matter what it costs. But I just want you to hear at least my point of view, and I think I represent other people in this church and the leadership of the church. We don't like a lot of those places, and we don't like a lot of the pain it causes. We did not write this book, but we are following this book. And it hurts. It hurts friends of mine. But the Bible's true. And if the Bible is true, then this church makes sense, the way we do things and why we do things. The Bible is God's revelation to us, and we submit to that. But I want to tell you something more about the Bible, not just in its authority. The Bible transforms us. The Bible is the primary means that the Father has left for the Spirit to use to make us like Jesus Christ. The Bible is the primary means that the Father has chosen for the Spirit to use to make us like Jesus Christ. Look at this passage. I mean, I just touched on the one word, God breathed. Look what the rest of it says. All of Scripture is God breathed and is useful. Look how it's useful for stuff, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wow, <laughs> the Bible has so much power and potential for transformation. The Bible is the, it says it teaches, it's a teaching book. It's the answer key 
You know, in the back of the math book where all the answers are, that's the Bible. Now, you can piddle around. I don't know about you, but I'm running out of time here. I don't have time to, like, experiment with how to do family. I'm just going to go to the answer key. I don't know how to do marriage. I'm going to go to the answer key. You want to know what success is in business? You want to check with a guy down the street or, or Forbes magazine? I got a better answer. It's in the Bible. Let the Bible define what success is. Let it teach you. So read the Bible. It's a rebuke. It says it's good for rebuke. That means it corrects you. Like mid-course. Man, this happened to me yesterday. I'm driving around. A Bible verse hits me right in the soul and says, yeah, you're doing this wrong. It convicts you of lies. You're believing a lie. So don't just read it. Study it. Study the Bible. What else it says? It's good for correcting. Correcting, the, the word actually means restore to its original design. That's what life's about, restoring us to its original design. So how, I don't know about you. Anybody here with a bent frame, out of alignment, want to get back? Life has beaten you or battered you like you weren't supposed to be? The Bible says if you would not just read this and study but memorize it, it will bring you back to top dead center. It goes on. It says it's a training. It's a training book, a training in righteousness. I love this word because it's the word that, that is used to train children, like grow, parent kids. And I've had to reparent myself. Okay? I, had to kind of, I wasn't really parented. I was housed growing up. And so I, had to re, I have to reparent myself. And you know what I'm using? Answer key. I'm going to the Bible. It's going to define what's right, real, and true and what a father looks like and what a mother really is. It can do that. So I meditate on it. I don't just memorize it. I meditate on it. Scripture is good for all training and righteousness so that we can. Look what it says. The servant may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Adequate and equipped for every good work sounds a little bit like becoming like Christ in all of life. Yep, it does. Sounds a lot like that. That's what we do here. That's us. So, you ask, or somebody asks you, what kind of church is Grace Covenant Church? This is what you tell them. We're a Bible church. Okay? That's what we do. That all makes sense. So we don't teach, we don't teach systems of theology or theories of theology as authoritative here. We just don't. We don't think that church history or even the reformers are authoritative. I think those things, sometimes they get lucky and spill their way into illuminating some truth for us, but the truth is in the Bible, and so we're going to keep teaching that. Okay? So if you look at our children's ministry, <laughs> thanks. It, it has the power to transform. Our children's ministry, oh, yeah, we're going to teach those kids to memorize passages. They might not understand what they mean. That's okay. Just get them in your heads, you know, because in our student ministry, okay, now that they're thinking clear, more clearly, actually, you know, deeper, right, they can understand deeper things, we're going to ta- teach them not information but knowledge and wisdom. We're going to start exploring what a world, a biblical worldview is. We're going to teach them to think biblically, philosophically. They get to experience, you know, literally experience camps and epics so they can experience the Bible. Our adult ministry is about teaching the Bible so we can apply the Bible for life, uh, life skills. The Bible is the means that the Father has chosen for the Spirit to use to help us to become like Christ in all of life. This church started in a Bible study that soon became a thing called Walk Through the Bible. And we're going to do the Walk Through the Bible again. January 12th, as a church, we're going to do an Old Testament Walk Through the Bible, just like the good old days. And then in 2020, we're spending the whole year, the year of the Bible. 
We felt like so many people have come here from outside the church and from churches that didn't teach the Bible. What do you say we raise the tide of the whole church? Let's see what the big picture of the sovereignty of God looks like. So that's where it is. That's what we're going to do next year. 2020, can't wait. That's who we are. Here's how to apply this right today. Like you showed up, it's like, what? What's the Bible? How do I start? Here's, here's a great way to start. You want to read your Bible? Study it. Meditate it. Memorize it. Here's what you do. Here's a great start. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. It's an Old Testament book, just about in the middle. Read a chapter a day. Read a chapter a day. That's a good way to, that's, uh, that's a good way to start reading your Bible. Pick one verse that day and say, see if you can memorize that verse. You want to graduate? A little varsity level stuff? Okay, read the book of James every day for a month. It's going to hit a low pot spot, but boy, after around the 20th time, you start getting like James is in your head now. Read it every day, maybe twice a day for 30 days. You want to go real? Memorize the book of Romans chapter 8, maybe chapter 5, or both. Read, memorize, meditate. Here we go. Here's why Grace Covenant Church exists. But we glorify God by guiding people to become like Christ in all of life. And here's what we do. We worship God in every way we can. We invest in ministries of equipping people to become like Christ, to be ministers out there. And we try to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in those places of influence that we have and all over the world. And the foundation for how we get that done is the Bible. We are committed to biblical truth. It defines us. We don't define it. It says what is right and real and true and the nature of God and what he's done. And that's how we do things. And if you see that, then all of this is going to make sense. So, Who's in? Who wants to be part of that church? Who wants to be part of this church? Let me see your hands. There you go. Let me pray. Lord, you, uh, when, you, when you taught us to pray about thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I see now you're talking about the church. Until we see you and until the final days of justice are fulfilled, the church is to reign on earth as we would in heaven. And so, Lord, I'd ask that you would stir our hearts again, that you would build your church anew, that you would give her power like you haven't done in centuries. And I'd ask that you would start here in my life. We don't want to waste our lives, Lord. We want to make them count. We want to make marks that last, and we know that happens when we serve your bride, we are your church. So we pray that you would revive the earth through the church. That your building of the kingdom on this planet at this time is through her and that darkness would fear her. That you would show your mighty hand in the streets and all the land through the church on fire. And people would envy the power of change, the glory of worship, and the beauty of the bride, and come and be part. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.